text today is coming out of Ezekiel, Ezekiel 18.30. Therefore, I will judge you, O house of Israel, everyone according to his ways, saith the Lord God. Repent and turn yourselves from all your transgressions, so iniquity shall not be your ruin. Cast away from you all your transgressions, whereby ye have transgressed, and make you a new heart and a new spirit. For why will ye die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of him that dieth, saith the Lord God. Wherefore, turn yourselves and live ye. Thank you, Jonathan, for leading the music, and again, Miss Alice, for playing that beautiful piano. So today, um, we're going to look at uh, three verses from the book of Ezekiel. And before we get into the text, let's, let's pray. Father, we do want to praise you. As Jonathan mentioned, it's such a beautiful day outside, and you are the author of all of our lives. And Lord, we just want to dedicate this Sunday to you that we would honor you today. Lord, I ask that you'd forgive any sin that might be in my life so that my words would not be hindered, that your glory would be magnified through your word, through your gospel. And Jesus, that you would bless all of us that are here, guard my tongue, and open the ears of the minds of the people that are listening to your word, Lord, for your glory. And Jesus, we just want to praise you. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for dying, that you are the propitiation of the wrath of God, that you do cleanse us from all of our sins, and Holy Spirit, that you would be with us today. We love you, God. Thank you, Father. Amen. So as Jonathan was reading these three verses from the book of Ezekiel, kind of giving some background on the book of Ezekiel, the book of Ezekiel is one of the three major prophets, the books of the three prophets. Not that they were more important prophets, but that the books are actually longer. There's Isaiah, Jeremiah, and the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel was part of the captured Israelite nation that was actually in Babylon. And giving some background on that, after Solomon died, his son came into reign. And his son was not wise, and the nation actually split up. His name was Rehoboam, and there was another king named Jeroboam, and the 12 tribes were split. Ten went to the north, and two were in the south, Judah and Benjamin. Jeroboam was a wicked king, and he actually set up two calves to, to worship, idol worship. One was in Dan, and one was in Samaria. And God became very angry because they were worshiping these false idols. And in approximately 722, God sent the nation of Assyria. They came in and conquered the northern kingdom. And they actually displaced a lot of people in Samaria and brought in foreign nations. If you remember Isaiah, he wrote the book of Isaiah about 700 before, years before Christ. So actually after the northern kingdom was already defeated. And then the, Ezekiel is 600 B.C. So Isaiah is kind of passing off the scene. And now we have Jeremiah and Ezekiel coming onto the scene. God withheld his judgment on the southern kingdom because of King Josiah being a righteous king. God had already judged the southern kingdom and said, woe be unto you. But Josiah was a good king and he held back on his anger. Now Josiah dies and the nation of Assyria is kind of melting away with their power and they're being replaced by Babylon. And Nebuchadnezzar is going to be the king coming in. His dad sent the first troops in to conquer, and they actually took back the first captives 
to Babylon, and in those first initial captives was Daniel, and Shadrach, and Anishak, and Abednego. So they were put into the kingdom, sort of like in the castle. They were living in the, in the king's house, and they became very learned in the ways of Babylon. Now, Nebuchadnezzar, he's the young guy. He goes back because in Jerusalem, they're rebelling a little bit against Babylon. Even though Jeremiah is preaching and saying, don't rebel, this is the way God wants it, they're raising up and they're kind of having discussions with Egypt and they want to go to war with Babylon. So Nebuchadnezzar leads an army back down to Jerusalem and they take approximately 10,000 captives back to the Babylon area. And in these captives is Ezekiel. And he's 25 years old at the time and he's married and he's taken back into the area and he's living outside of the, the capital and he's 25 at the time and five years later when he becomes 30 and he was training as a priest by the way and priests get their full priesthood in the Jewish culture when they turn 30. By the way that's why Jesus didn't start his public ministry until he became 30 because Jesus is prophet, priest and king and he fulfilled every jot and tittle of the law including that. Ezekiel's 30th birthday God gives him the first of a series of visions and the vision that he has is that Nebuchadnezzar's army will go back to Jerusalem and totally decimate the city. And that's indeed what they did. His vision was that the glory of God, which was in the Temple Mount, would be taken and brought to Babylon. And then later on, in other visions, it would go back. This was a fearful vision. And God was so angry, even on the Temple Mount, they had put idols to worship, false gods, right next to the temple. And God was very angry. And the lesson here to learn is we should not have idols in our life. That makes God very angry. So let's start looking at the, um, at the message for today. I have three points. The first one is God's call is to the impenitent. He's always calling the people to repent and to come before the throne and receive a salvation. The second point is the formation of a new heart and a new spirit, how that happens. And the third point would be God's divine sorrow over the lost soul. So let's look at the first verse here. Ezekiel 18.30. Therefore, I will judge you, O house of Israel, everyone according to his ways, saith the Lord God. Repent. Turn yourselves from all your transgressions, so iniquity shall not be your ruin. The key word in this sentence is repent. Hebrew, and the Greek for that matter, the word repent means a turning. And visualize in your mind that the lost person, or even a, a Christian who's involved with sin, they're not facing God. They're walking away from God in their sin. And repentance is turning away from your sin toward God. Ezekiel 18, 4 says, Behold, all souls are mine. As the soul of the Father, so also the soul of the Son is mine. And the soul that sinneth, it shall die. In the Jewish tradition, another thing that they held is that the benefits of the Father passed on to the son. So, for example, if you were wealthy, that would be a great benefit to have. But also, they believe that the sins of the father passed on to the son. And that's not a true biblical point of view. And this verse is saying, God is setting the table. He's saying, as the soul of the father, so also the soul of the son is mine. Because all souls are God, he can define how those souls will be treated at the judgment seat. Let's look at the next verse. 18, Ezekiel 18, 20. 
The soul that sinneth, it shall die. This is a consistent theme throughout the Bible. That's why we need a Savior. The Son shall not bear the iniquity of the Father, neither shall the Father bear the iniquity of the Son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon him, and the wickedness of the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon him. So this verse is saying there is a, 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 a distinction between the Father and the Son. I am a dad of six children. When, my, when, when I sin, my sin isn't good. They are not going to be held accountable at the judgment seat for my sins. Nor, when they sin, will I be held accountable for their sins at the judgment seat. Now, certainly, I can influence them. Let's say I was an alcoholic and I got drunk every night. Maybe some of my boys would become alcoholics. I would have blood on my hands for that sin at the judgment seat because of the influence. But if they decided to become an alcoholic, that sin would still be on them. Ezekiel 18.21 But if the wicked shall turn from all his sins that he hath committed, and keep all my statutes, and do that which is lawful and right, he shall surely live. He shall not die. So the, God is saying in this verse, if the wicked, that's somebody who's lost, somebody who's, who hasn't come to a point of, of acknowledging Jesus in their life, if he will turn from all of his sins that he has committed and keep the statutes, he shall live. Now, keeping the statutes, that isn't like a work-based salvation. What God is saying is, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love me, you will not want to sin. In your core being, you become a new creature in Christ, and all the old things, all of those sin nature, things that would draw you away from God, they're past. And now your lifestyle is totally different. Ezekiel 18.24 says, But when the righteous turn away from his righteousness, and commits iniquity, and doeth according to all the abominations that the wicked man doeth, shall he live? God is saying, if you're wicked, will you live? And this living is eternal life. Because a wicked man can live in this world. There's a lot of wicked men that are rich and powerful that they're alive and they're thinking, hey, I'm living the good life. God is talking about eternity here. After you pass from time into eternity. And he goes on to say, all his righteousness that he has done shall not be mentioned. In his trespass that he trespassed, in his sin that he sinned, in them will he die. That rich man who's living in sin, maybe he gave a lot of money to a church. Maybe he donated a lot of his time working for the Salvation Army. Maybe he was in the military or was in the police force. And he lived a good life. But God says, if you're not saved, all of those righteousness things that you did, they're not even going to be mentioned at the judgment seat. There's a distinction. At the judgment seat, God says, are you saved? If you're saved, you're put into one category and you have the Bema seat. If you're not saved, you're put in another category and you're at the great white throne. At the Bema seat, God judges the works we have done for his glory. And we get benefits and rewards. At the white throne, God judges the wickedness, the extent of the sin, and there's the degrees of punishment in hell and the lake of fire based on the sins that you've done. Ecclesiastes 12.14 says, For God shall bring every work into judgment, with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. There's a lot of people who do things in secret. They could be sin, and God says he will, re will reveal those at the judgment seat. But there are many people also serving Christ that they don't want anybody to know the service they're doing for the king. But God says on the day of judgment... He will make even those little things that the Christians are doing for his glory, 
they will be known. And you will receive war, rewards for the works that you do for the Lord at the Bema Seat. Isaiah 66, 16 says, For by fire and by his sword will the Lord plead with all flesh, all flesh, and the slain of the Lord will be many. The fire of the Lord judges. God is going to try all of our works. If they're wood, hay, and stubble, they burn up in the fire. If they're precious stones and jewels, that's what we get our rewards on. And God, the Bible says God is a consuming fire. His purity is consuming fire. But it also says he will, by his sword, plead with all flesh. The sword of God is the word. It's the Bible. The sword of the Lord. It's the Bible. He pleads with every man, all men, to be saved. The grace of God touches all of us in many, many, many ways. And his word is pleading. God is pleading for all men to be saved. And the men who reject salvation at the day of, of judgment, it's, that's on them. Because God is pleading and he's a loving God. He's a merciful God. He wants all to come to repentance that none should go into the lake of fire. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Jesus is the judge. All things were made by him. That's why he's the judge. In John 5, God the Father gives all judgment unto the Son. And we must appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Not of the Father. Not of the Holy Spirit. And one of the reasons, beside the fact that Jesus made everything, he's the creator, all things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made, Jesus also was made flesh. So Jesus understands every time we're tempted. He was tempted in all manner, but he never sinned. He understands when we're weak, when we're hungry, when we're tired, when we're under emotional trial, when the demon darts are coming into our spirit world. Jesus understands all of that. So he is the only one that's fit to judge us, and he will judge. We will stand at the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body. Everything we've done in our body, our thoughts, our physical actions, our attitudes, if we're, if we're happy, if we're sad, we have to give an account for that. Psalm 34, 18 says, The Lord is nigh unto them that are of a broken heart, and save such as be of a contrite spirit. The Lord knows when we're sorry for our sins. All of us have experienced sorrow in our life. Usually the big, the high points that we remember about being sorry, well, I guess the low points, but the things that are most sorrowful in our life are usually when people die that are near and dear to us. We cannot understand that type of a sorrow. Do we have that type of sorrow for our sins? God is close. He's nigh to those people that have that godly sorrow. If you look at the, at the title for this message is repent or sin will be the ruin of your soul. The ruin of your soul is the sin. Are you sorry for the sin? Now, what is ruin? Ruin is like when you totally destroy, well, it's when something becomes not useful anymore. And a soul that's ruined is no longer useful for God's kingdom. I remember my second son, Justin, a few, many, well, actually many years ago now, he was making some cookies. He mixed up the sugar with the salt. <laughs> so when those cookies came out of the oven, everybody wanted to eat the cookies, right? But they didn't taste good. They were ruined. That's kind of a little picture of our, of our soul. It gets ruined by what we do to sin in our life. Proverbs 28, 13. He that covers his sins shall not prosper, but whoso confesses 
and forsakes them shall have mercy. Many of us, when we're living a, a lifestyle of sin, we're really in denial because we're living in deceit. And we have that spirit of deception of deceit. And in the Hebrew, that word is guile. It actually means a snare, a trap. Like you're trapping an animal and that, that snare leads to death. That's what God is saying. The, the deceit, the guile, that spirit of guile, the deceit of lying. It's from the devil, by the way. The devil's the father of all lies. But we fall into that. If we're covering up our sin, we have a spirit of guile. God says, but whoso confesses it and forsakes them. Many people will confess their sins, but they never forsake. When you go to the jail, you talk to the men there. They all are willing to confess why they're there. But when they get out, the recidivism rate is very high. They don't forsake that, that lifestyle of sin. And many of those men are back in jail five, six, seven times until life beats them down and they're 55 years old. And they go, okay, enough. I, I don't want to come back here. 2 Corinthians 7.10 says, For godly sorrow works repentance to salvation, not to be repented of. But the sorrow of the world worketh death. Godly sorrow, when we truly get saved and repent, that is a sorrow that comes from God. That's a grace of God that gives us repentance. Repentance isn't works-based. There's false preaching out there that says, you don't need to repent to be saved. You do need to repent. The first message God preached when he came out of the desert being tempted by the devil in Mark 1, he said, repent ye and believe the gospel. If, if Jesus says repent, we need to repent. But we can only repent when God gives us that godly sorrow. It's a grace of God. It's not a work of man. And he says it's not to be repented of. When you truly repent, you're saved. And when you truly repent, you can't turn around and not repent. You can't take away the repentance. Because that, that's saying you're born, once you're born again, you cannot lose your salvation. Praise God. We can go through a lot of temptations and we can get into patterns of sin. But the Christian who's truly born again cannot lose his salvation. Let me read that again. For godly sorrow works repentance to salvation, not to be repented of. The flip side of that coin is the sorrow of the world works death. The sorrow of sin leads to hell. Hell is death, and the lake of fire is the second death. Acts 3.19 says, Repent ye therefore, and be converted. If you truly repent with a godly sorrow, you are converted. You come into the kingdom. You're born again. You're a child of the God. You're adopted into the family. And it says that your sins may be blotted out when the times of refreshing come from the presence of the Lord. That's talking about eternity, the times of refreshing, when we enter into God's rest. But do you notice he says his, your sins will be blotted out. When I was in high school, I went to a Catholic high school, so the nuns were very strict. Probably the blessed class I ever took in, in my life was learning how to type. Even today, I type some, some of this message. I'm, you have to type in today's world with the internet. Everything is typing, right? We had to make sure when we turned our papers in that we, they were mistake-free. Or the nun would give it back and go correct that paper, Jim. So you would have to, and this is before all of the word processing we have today. These are the old manual typewriters. Remember this, Miss Alice? You stick the paper and you click, 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 click. You bring it down, you type it, and you make a mistake. Then you have to get out the whiteout with a little brush. You, you flip it up, put the whiteout, and you, you blow it a couple times, it dries, and you scroll it back down, and you line it up perfect, and you click that R or the S or the T, whatever the mistake was. Here's my paper, and you get your grade. 
that blotting out, remember, that reminds me of typing, but that's a picture of what God is doing, the blackness of the, of the evil of our sins, he's blotting that out. Now, the, our sin is a mistake because we choose to sin. When I made a mistake on the typing, that was a mistake. But when we sin, that's not a mistake. That's a choice. On the next page, this, the second point here is the formation of a new heart and a new spirit. The formation of a new heart, when we get saved, we have a new heart. God takes that heart of stone and converts it into a heart of flesh. Ezekiel 18.31 says, Cast away from you all your transgressions, whereby you have transgressed, and make you a new heart and a new spirit. For why will you die, O house of Israel? So cast away your transgressions. The easiest way to not sin is to flee from the temptation. Cast away those transgressions, whereby you have transgressed and make you a new heart and a new spirit. When we get saved, we have a heart of flesh. We're now we're, we're in tune with the Spirit of God. We can understand when God speaks to us. We now are spiritually discerned. But God is saying we also have a new spirit. The Holy Spirit now lives us in us. We're born again. When, John was when Jesus was talking to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, he said, Marvel not that you must be born of water and of the Spirit. When you're born again, you're born of the Spirit. You have a new spirit in Christ. Ezekiel 18.22 says, All his transgressions that he hath committed, they shall not be mentioned unto him. In his righteousness that he has done, shall he live. So this is saying at the beam of seat, for a Christian who saved all his transgressions that he committed, they shall not be mentioned. And the reason they're not mentioned is they're under the blood. As far as the east from the west, that's how far God removes our transgressions from us. Ezekiel 18.25 says, Yet you say, this is the nation of Israel, Ezekiel saying to the people, this is what you're talking about, God. And yet you say, the way of the Lord is not equal. O house of Israel, is not my way equal? God is answering them. They're saying, God, your way is not equal. You're not fair. You don't judge everybody the same. And God is saying, is not my way equal? Are not your ways unequal? You know, whenever we, whenever we accuse God of something, we're standing on very thin ice because God cannot make a mistake and he never changes. And he's no respecter of persons. The nation of Israel is accusing God here. And that's, that's actually a form of blasphemy. And God is saying, no, I don't change. I am not unequal. You are unequal. You treat people unequally. Acts 10, 34 and 35 says, Then Peter opened his mouth and said, Of a truth, I perceive that God is no respecter of persons. God is no respecter. He doesn't care if you're the president or somebody working as a, in a laundromat. He doesn't care if you're Bill Gates, the richest man in the world, or some street pulper that happens to have to sleep on the street at nighttime. God is no respecter of persons. The only issue that's important with God is do you have saving faith? Do you believe Jesus is God, that he died on the cross for your sins, and that you're living a life as receiving his free gift through faith? That's what matters to God. It says, but in every nation he that feareth him and worketh righteousness is accepted with God. It says in every nation, God's word doesn't just go to Americans. It goes to all nations. And by the way, God is a nationalist because Satan is a one world government. 
being. God is a nationalist. God judges nations in Revelation. And here he says, again, but in every nation, he, he that fears God and works righteousness is accepted with God. Romans 3, 3 and 4 says, For what if some did not believe? Shall their unbelief make the faith of God without effect? We have a lot of unbelievers. Does that make my faith without effect? No. The atheist cannot stop somebody else from being saved. Just like my salvation, the grace that God gave me to be saved, I cannot share that with my family. Even though my grandma prayed for me to be saved, God still had to save me. God still had to meet with me, Jim, and I had to receive him as my God, my Lord, and my Savior. My, my grandma's grace didn't come to me. And, and this verse is saying the flip side of that. Somebody else's unbelief doesn't water down and, and negate the power of God to save the believer. Let me read that again. For what if some did not believe? And there are many people in America, many atheists who don't believe. Shall their unbelief make the faith of God without effect? God forbid. Yea, let God be true and every man a liar. Every atheist is a liar. They're denying God. They have the spirit of guile, the spirit of deceit. And it's a deadly trap for them that will send their soul to hell. And it says, as it is written, that thou mightest be justified in thy sayings, and mightest overcome when thou art judged. At the Bema seat and the great white throne, all that God has to do is lift up the Bible. And all judgment that is given to, to Jesus is founded in the word of God. God is truth and every man is a liar. Ezekiel 18.26 When a righteous man turns away from his righteousness and commits iniquity and dies in them, for his iniquity that he hath done, shall he die. When he turns away from his righteousness, who was the righteousness of, of Israel? Jehovah. And the people who were going after these false idols that God was so angry at, they were turning from their righteousness. They were turning from their God. They were turning away from Jehovah and the blessings. And it says, when a righteous man turns away from his righteousness, away from God, and commits iniquity, sin, transgressions, and dies in them, for his iniquity that he has done, that's why he dies. Because he turned from his righteousness. Hebrews 6, 4 and 5. And this, by the way, this happens today. Hebrews 6, 4, 5 and 6. For it is impossible. That doesn't mean there's one chance in a hundred, one chance in a thousand, one chance in a million. It says it's impossible. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted of the good word of God and the powers of the world to come, if they shall fall away, to renew them again unto repentance, seeing they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to open shame. Let's get a real world example. Let's say we went to the Golden Corral Buffet there on Ward's Road. They have... So much food, right? 20, 30, 40, I don't know, maybe 50 types of food. And let's say somebody walked into that buffet. They went up to the salad section and they ate one little cherry tomato. And they went, oh, that was pretty good. That was tasty. Then they took a strawberry. Mmm, that was a yummy strawberry. And then they grazed over past all the steaks and the potatoes. And they went over to the cookie section and they just took a little crumb of a chocolate chip cookie. And they went, you know what? I'm not really hungry. And they walked out. They, they came and tasted of the buffet, but they never sat down 
and enjoyed the meal. And that's what happens when somebody who comes to God and tastes of his word, and they're in the word, they understand the word, and if they turn away from God, God says it's impossible for them to come back and renew repentance. They are lost. All right, the next, Ezekiel 18.27, again, when the wicked man turns away from his wickedness that he has committed and doeth that which is lawful and right, he shall save his soul alive. That person who turns away from their wickedness and receives Christ as Savior, they will save their soul alive. The opposite of that is the soul that sinneth will die. So you have to receive Jesus as your Savior to have your soul be alive. And you need to turn from your transgressions, from your sins, from all your iniquities. Ezekiel 18.28 Because he considereth and turneth away from all his transgressions that he has committed, he shall surely live, and he shall not die. So this, the next verse here is underscoring what Jesus said in 27. If you turn from your wickedness, receive Jesus as Christ, you will go to heaven, because your soul is alive. John 4.14 says, But whosoever drinketh of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into eternal life. Jesus is the water of life. Have you taken and drunk freely of the well of eternal life that's only in Jesus Christ? And once you have it, it's always going to be providing the, worst, the nourishing water that you need. Now let's look at a counterpart of that in the Old Testament. Ezekiel 36.25 says, Then will I sprinkle clean water upon you, and you shall be clean. From all your filthiness, from all your idols, will I cleanse you. In the next verse, 26, And a new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you, and I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. And these two verses are the point, the second point. Once we receive the washing away of God's, God's blood as the blood atonement, and we receive the water of life, he gives us a heart of flesh. Now we're made alive in Christ. And that's very, very important to understand. Do you have a hard heart yet? Or do you have a heart of flesh? Are you still hardened in your sin? Or have you received Jesus as Savior and now you're open to the, the workings, the, the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, and peace? Ezekiel 36, 27 and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you shall keep my judgments and do them. People that are saved will do God's works. And God is saying it. If God says it's going to happen, it will happen. He said, I will put my spirit in you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you shall keep my judgments and do them. Not only is that a binding promise from God on us, but it's actually a blessing. Because he's saying, I'm keeping you from sin. And for, for us that are saved in this room, isn't it the more you walk with the Lord, it seems like the narrower he makes your path? It's like, I don't want you to go there. Nope, stay on this path. And that's what God is saying. As he makes your path narrower, that's a blessing. Because He, when you go off the path, that's when we get in trouble. God wants us to stay on his preordained path that he has given to us. So on the last page, Ezekiel 11.21. But as for them whose heart walketh after the heart of their detestable things and their abominations, 
I will recompense their way upon their own heads, saith the Lord. So the rebellious people who refuse God's grace through faith to be saved, God says all of their sins are going to be put on top of their head. They will be responsible for it at the, at the judgment seat. The third point, God has a divine sorrow over the lost soul. And now there's a distinction. God is sorry for the person who's sinning and walking into sin. But it only goes up until your death. Once you die, God's mercy is gone. The Bible says, He that despises Moses' law dies without mercy. But during your life, while you're walking your life until you die, God is sorrowing over the sins of the unbelievers. And in fact, Jesus is a picture of that. When he was outside Jerusalem, before he was going to be crucified, he was crying over the, over the city of Jerusalem because of all of those people that were lost and on their way to hell. God has a sorrow for our sins. Ezekiel 18.32 says, For I have no pleasure in the death of him that dies, saith the Lord. Wherefore, turn yourselves and live. Ezekiel 18.23 says, Have I any pleasure at all that the wicked should die? He's asking us that. We know the answer is no. Saith the Lord God, and not that he should return from his ways and live. God is asking, do I have any joy when I have to send somebody to hell? No, I don't. But God is a just judge. Every sin has a punishment requirement. Every sin we do has a punishment tied to it. And if we don't believe in Jesus as our Savior, we have to pay the punishment. Jesus, for the Christian, has paid that punishment. He went to the cross to pay the price of that sin. It's a free gift. When you think about, when you think about this logically, how can anybody refuse Jesus as Savior? It's, it just makes so much sense. Why do you want to pay the penalty for your sins when it's already paid? If I got a speeding ticket and the, and, the, and the court said I owe $250, it's like, wow. And somebody stands up, hey, I'll pay that bill. It's like, yes, thank you. Who would refuse that? And yet, we're not talking about $250. We're talking about eternity of suffering. Hebrews 3, 11 through 13. So I swear in my wrath. This is God talking about his anger, his wrath. So I swear in my wrath, they shall not enter into my rest. They shall not enter into heaven. Take heed. Take heed means listen up, pay attention. Take heed, brethren, lest there be any of you an evil heart of unbelief. God hates unbelief. That's an evil heart of unbelief. In departing from the living God, but exhort one another daily. Exhort, lift up, present the gospel. People are lost. Somehow God will give us the inroad. Maybe it's just through prayer. Sometimes it's handing a tract. Sometimes it's inviting them over for a dinner, a cup of coffee at Starbucks. But it says, exhort one another daily while it is called today. Today is the day of salvation, not tomorrow. I was reading a, an article. I was talking about this with my sons, Josiah and Justice, last night because we were going over part of this as our, our devotion last night. And there was a girl up in New York City. She was 21 years old. Three days ago, she turned 21. Her and her boyfriend and another guy were in an infinity. And... Her boyfriend was drunk. He was 25 or 26 years old. She was sitting in the back seat because his friend was in the front seat. So there's three in the car, two guys. Her boyfriend's drunk, driving the car. Her 21st birthday, out partying. It was three-something in the morning. He was driving approximately 50 miles an hour, maybe hit some ice from the snowstorm. 
hit the infinity, lost control, and smashed into this pillar, just like these walls up, but it was concrete on a bridge. The car was split in half. And the two men in the front, nothing happened to them. The airbags all deployed. You know the 21-year-old girl that was sitting in the back? The article said her body was severed in half. Do you think when she got in that car, she thought she would be going into eternity? Boast not yourself of tomorrow. We don't know what a day will bring forth. And God is saying that here. Exhort one another daily while it's called today, lest any of you be hardened through the, the, the deceitfulness of sin, through the lie of sin, through the lie that you can get away with it, through the lie that, oh, this doesn't matter to God. It does matter to God. 2 Peter 3.9 The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men call slackness, but is long-suffering to us who are not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Sometimes in the summer, I take my boys fishing, and when you throw out the anchor, the, the line runs down, and maybe you're in 30 feet of water, and the boat kind of goes away, and then that anchor rope just kind of like gets on top of the water, and it's, it's there, right? And I'll say, Josiah, pull in the slack. So he's pulling that slack in until all the rope is tight with the anchor against the boat. That's a form of slack. This verse says God doesn't have any slack. And you're wondering, okay, why is he putting up with this person sinning and sinning and sinning? Or why is he taking 2,000 years to come back? This verse tells us, God is not slack concerning his promises. Some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us, not willing that any should perish. The reason Jesus didn't come back yet, he wants every soul that's coming into the kingdom to come into the kingdom. Mark 9, 43 to 44. And if your hand offend thee, cut it off. It is better for thee to enter into life maimed than having two hands to go into hell, into the fire that never shall be quenched, where the worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. The fires of hell and the lake of fire will never go out. In, in, these, in this verse, God says it twice, never will be quenched, shall not be quenched. This picture of cutting off your hand, God wants to be very extreme. He doesn't mean go out and cut off your hand if you stole something at the store. He wants to make the impression in your mind, sin is very detrimental to your soul. He, may, he says another, if you lust after a woman, pluck out your eye. He doesn't literally want us to pluck out our eye. We've got two eyes, we've got two hands. But he wants to make it clear in our mind that that sin is so detrimental to your soul, you need to take a drastic action. Because the hellfire will never be quenched if you go to hell. Revelation 2010 says, And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are, and shall be tormented day and night, forever and ever. There are no break rooms in hell. There's no air-conditioned room where you can go rest for eight hours and take a Coca-Cola. It's 24-7, 365. And do you notice the devil was cast into the lake of fire where the beast and the false prophet are? The devil is a demon. He's a fallen angel. He's a spirit. The beast and the false prophet are human beings. And they were cast into the lake of fire a thousand years while Satan was tied up in the, in the hell in the, under the earth with a great chain. So when he was released, the beast and the false prophet had already been in hell for a thousand, in the lake of fire for a thousand years. And they, they, were, they were burned up. So people that say you're annihilated in hell, that's not true. You will never come out of hell if you go to hell. Revelation 20.15 And whosoever was not found written in the book of life 
was cast into the lake of fire. If you're saved, your name is in the book of life. If you're not saved, your name is not in the book of life. So whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Revelation 21.8. This defines who goes into hell in the lake of fire. The fearful, the unbelieving, the abominable, murderers, whoremongers, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. This morning I was teaching the junior boys at church, and one of the kids asked me, is it okay if I want to be a magician? I took him to this verse. And sorcery, God hates sorcery. And I know there could be innocent magicians, but the more you get into that practice, the more demonic it becomes. And God doesn't want us to go there. This has been a heavy message. A lot of it about sin and hell. And I want to end it, because we have a couple of verses here, on a very high note. God loves us. And John 3.16 says why he loves us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. But in order to be saved, you have to understand you're lost. Really, that's a crucial key. Because many people, they don't think they need a savior because they go, I'm a good person. God says, no, there's none righteous, no, not one, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There's not a just man upon earth that doeth good and sinneth not. We're all sinners. So we all need a Savior. And that's why God sent his Son to be the Redeemer. The next verse, John 3, 17. God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Not will be saved, might be saved. Because not everybody will be saved. Some people are not going to be saved because they're going to reject Jesus as their Savior. But many will be saved. And look at the last verse. Why did God go to the cross? Why before the foundations of time did he put the plan of salvation in place? Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. We are God's joy. If you're a Christian today, you're God's joy. And that's why he endured the cross, the shame of the cross, the God of the universe. He condescended down to human form and was born in a manger and was the son of a poor carpenter couple. He endured the cross. He never sinned, and yet he was condemned to death for our sins. He condescended himself from the throne of God, became a human being, still all God, lived a perfect life, was our sacrificial lamb on the cross. And now we become his joy. That's a beautiful picture. A very beautiful picture. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this lesson from Ezekiel. Lord, your, your word is so awesome and it's so deep. And, and we just touched on a little bit of these three verses. But we love you, God. And if there's anybody here today who has not received you as Lord, Savior, King, Redeemer, King of Kings, and Prophet, Priest, and King in their life, that today would be the day that they receive you as their Savior. We love you, Jesus. Thank you for your Holy Spirit. Lord, give us some opportunities to witness this week. We ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen.